Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. Today we have a contributor joining us, Olivia Howarth, who's going to tell us about the history of this specialty. In 1991, the International Federation for Emergency Medicine defined the specialty as a field of practice based on the knowledge and skills required for the prevention, diagnosis and management of acute and urgent aspects of illness and injury, affecting patients of all age groups with a full spectrum of undifferentiated physical and behavioural disorders. Although the specialism was established surprisingly recently, the practice of emergency care is as old as medicine itself. There is often an expectation placed on physicians to provide effective diagnosis and treatment quickly, never more so than in emergency circumstances when the patient is suffering from an acute disease or injury. The phrase acute indicates that the disease or injury is of short duration, and recent onset, and invariably, it is contrasted with the concept of chronic. The distinction between acute and chronic diseases was developed in the time of Hippocrates and the medical school of Cos. Ancient physicians were admired if they could manage acute conditions, and in the regimen and acute diseases attributed to Hippocrates, it was written, I should most commend a physician who in acute diseases, which kill the great majority of patients, shows some superiority. In the 2nd century CE, Greek physician Serranus of Ephesus wrote on acute and chronic diseases, a treatise in which he made a clear distinction between the two, based on his own clinical observations. The college holds a 5th century Latin adaptation of Serranus's work by Calus Aurelianus, published in Amsterdam in the early 18th century. The book presents about 50 wide-ranging ailments, ranging from parasites to epilepsy, with definitions and descriptions of symptoms for each. The basis for the division between acute and chronic, as Serranus explains it, is that chronic diseases continue after their first onset, or are characterised by periods of attack and intervals of remission, whereas acute conditions are severe and sudden, and usually resolve quickly with medical treatment. Aside from the need for accurate and speedy diagnosis of acute conditions, emergency medicine has also focused on the treatment of traumatic injuries. Some of the earliest examples of printed guidance for treatment of injuries were often accompanied by images of the wound man, 
Pierced and bludgeoned from different angles, he demonstrated the possible wounds and injuries a physician might be called upon to treat in different areas of the body. Popular examples included injuries sustained during battle, such as an arrow through the thigh or a sword in the shoulder. In his Field Book of Surgery, published in Strasbourg in 1528, the German army surgeon Hans von Gerstorff included a memorable illustration of the wound man, notable for being the first to include a pair of cannonballs, which strike the figure's wrist and shin. Gerstorff's book made some suggested improvements on previous practice, such as giving patients opium before operations, using devices to help with fractured limbs, and stopping bleeding with pressure bandages made from animal bladders. In fact, several other concepts of modern emergency medicine procedure were developed under military conditions. Baron Dominique Jean Leray, a French surgeon in Napoleon's army, is one of the most notable pioneers. During the French Revolution, having seen the speed with which the carriages of the French flying artillery manoeuvred across the battlefield, Leray adapted the idea to form ambulance volante. These flying ambulances, operated by trained crews of drivers, rapidly transported wounded soldiers away from the front line, to a place where medical care was more accessible and practical. According to his memoirs, these ambulances consisted of two- and four-wheeled carriages and mobilised 340 men in three divisions. Leray also developed the practice of triage, rationing and prioritising care to those most in need of immediate treatment. The Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian is said to have used structured triage in his armies, but he gave higher priority to military personnel over civilians, and to higher-ranked soldiers over the lower-ranked. By comparison, Leray treated the wounded according to the observed severity of their injuries, and the apparent urgency for medical care, regardless of rank or nationality. This concept of prioritising by prognosis was further used by French and British soldiers during World War I, who divided patients into three categories. Those who were likely to live, but needed rapid emergency treatment, were given highest priority. Those in the second category had more minor injuries, but still required treatment, and then those who were unlikely to live were made comfortable, but not prioritised. In modern emergency rooms, a similar, although more detailed, prioritisation system is still applied. The idea of an ordered emergency care system gradually evolved over the 20th century, but in the centuries prior, the response to medical emergencies was unpredictable. Physicians did not often have the equipment to diagnose conditions quickly enough for effective treatment. For example, in 1702, Anthony Gray, the Earl of Kent, was playing bowls when he fell down unconscious. He was immediately attended by a prominent London physician, Charles Goodall, who later described the incident in a letter to his colleague Sir Thomas Millington. The Earl had neither pulse nor breath, but only one or two small rattlings in the throat, his eyes being closed. Goodall began a series of treatments to attempt to revive the Earl. First, he was bled. Then snuff and smelling salts were applied before antimonial wine was poured down his throat. Although strange, this treatment was standard procedure at the time, the idea being to shock the patient back to life by sneezing, coughing or vomiting. Goodall went on to bleed the Earl again, apply a caustic blister and hot iron to his head, and administer buckthorn syrup, a medicine used to empty the bowels. When these treatments did not work, 
Dutch fumigation was used, whereby tobacco smoke is blown into the anus in the belief that the stimulant would elicit a response. Finally, the bowels of a freshly butchered sheep were wrapped around the Earl's abdomen to try and warm him up. Despite the fact that none subsequently worked, Goodall felt reasonably encouraged to make use of all proper remedies in so great a case. His perseverance in his resuscitation efforts are more understandable when put in context of the period, over a hundred years prior to the invention of the stethoscope, when it was difficult to be absolutely sure that the heart had stopped beating. One of his resuscitation techniques in particular, Dutch fumigation, increased in popularity throughout the 18th century. In 1767, the Society for the Recovery of Drowned Persons was formed in Amsterdam. They published several guides on resuscitation, which included recommendations for Dutch fumigation, but also practical instructions, such as removing swallowed or aspirated water by positioning the patient's head lower than their feet, or releasing air into their mouth. Following the successes of the society, Rescue and Resuscitation Society soon sprang up in most European population centres, and in 1774, the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, now the Royal Humane Society, was formed in London. They initially offered monetary reward to those who helped resuscitate people, before gradually replacing the rewards with medals and certificates. Other common methods of resuscitation for people who had drowned included the inversion method, where patients were held upside down to remove water from the lungs, and the barrel method, where a person was rolled repeatedly over a barrel. This simulated respiration by applying and releasing pressure on the chest. One of the more unusual methods was the trotting horse method, which was used by American lifeguards in the early 1800s. The person was placed face down across the saddle, and the horse was led up and down the beach, in the hope that the movement would result in alternate compression and relaxation of the chest. The emphasis on first aid in cases of near drowning and on artificial respiration continued for many years. In their book, Emergencies of General Practice, published in 1910, Percy Sargent and Alfred E. Russell's instructions for reviving drowned people included using a range of purpose-built mechanical tools, including the pulmotor, motor, the lung motor, the Meltzer apparatus, and the life motor. The rest of the book detailed some of the other types of medical emergencies a physician might be presented with, including diabetic comas, indigestion, heart attacks, badger bites, and accidental poisoning. In the late 19th and early 20th century, industrialization, urbanization, and economies of scale in the growing population led to the establishment of hospitals with emergency treatment facilities. Initially, emergency departments were staffed with junior doctors, alongside surgeons and general medical physicians who rotated in from other specialities. However, in the face of increasing public expectation, it was soon realised that the demand for convenient, effective medical care could only be met if emergency departments were placed in the hands of dedicated doctors who made the subject their permanent interest and responsibility. In the UK, this need was slowly met by an increasing number of specialist posts. In 1953, the Senior Casualty Officer grade was established in the UK to provide experienced medical supervision in casualty departments. 
1972, 30 consultant posts were established as an experimental pilot, creating a new specialty in accident and emergency medicine. And in 1978, the first senior registrar appointments were approved by the Specialist Advisory Committee in Accident and Emergency Medicine. In the early 2000s, emergency medicine further established itself as a separate field, when the British Association for Emergency Medicine combined with the Faculty of Accident and Emergency Medicine to form the College of Emergency Medicine. In 2017, the now Royal College of Emergency Medicine celebrated 50 years since the inception of the speciality at the inaugural meeting of their forerunners, the Casualty Surgeons Association, in 1967. So welcome to the podcast. We have with us today Dr. Kerry Baker. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to see you, Dizzy. And just to start off with, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do, you know, where you work and, and what area you work in? Sure. I'm a consultant acute physician and general physician in Victoria Hospital in NHS Fife, and I've been a consultant there for almost 11 years. Thank you very much. So just to start off with, what is acute medicine? What does that actually mean? So acute medicine is the area of general medicine that focuses really on the first 72 hours of a patient's admission. So um, new people arriving in hospital either sent in by A&E or by primary care. And our main aim is to stabilise and to diagnose those patients and make sure we've got them set on the right journey. Then either sending them home or off to another specialist. We focus purely on physicianly topics. So we see every day a little bit of respiratory and cardiology, gastroenterology, neurology and all sorts. Thank you. So people use, seem to use the terms both emergency medicine and acute medicine when they're talking about this sort of area of work. So is there a, a defined difference between emergency and acute medicine or are they basically the same thing? They're absolutely different areas and they have completely different training structures um, and different job descriptions. So uh, my colleagues in emergency medicine, who are equally fabulous to acute physicians, um, see undifferentiated cases. So that can be anyone with any condition. And that includes things such as trauma, paediatrics, people who may need uh, operations, people who may primarily have psychiatric problems um, and uh, pregnant patients or people that are giving birth, for example. Acute medicine is actually a physicianly specialty, which means it focuses on internal organs, things that generally don't need operations uh, in and in the adult population. Sometimes it can be difficult to tease out and it might be hard for the referrer to know what specialty that patient goes to. So we do sometimes end up seeing these kind of conditions, but generally that's the main focus of our workload. So it's a little bit more differentiated and more streamlined than emergency medicine, whose doctors have to be able to do everything under the sun. Thank you very much. So Acute medicine is something that a lot of people will be at least somewhat aware of um, because, you know, either they've had an experience or someone they know has had an experience. That's um, right. So I'm interested to know, you know, is there anything that people don't know about what you do? Is there anything that people will surprise people or are there any stereotypes as to as to what you do that you can dispel myths? 
Sure. Well, I think a lot of people think acute medicine is quite a chaotic specialty to work in because if they've either been a patient or a junior doctor, they tend to see the sharp end of things, which are based in the acute medical unit, where really often very sick patients in large numbers are being admitted. And people see us um, running around seeing lots of patients simultaneously um, and having a more endlessly coming in the door waiting to be seen. And I think that's a conception that people have both of acute medicine and of emergency medicine. But actually in acute medicine, there are other areas that we have expertise in too. And one of the large areas for acute physicians to work in is ambulatory medicine, which are like emergency clinics, but of very different settings, um, lesser known to people, both to staff and to patients. And in those areas, we've often got a little bit more time for thought. Patients are less likely to be suddenly or severely unwell. And instead of needing emergency treatment, they need some careful diagnostic work. So we're quite proud of being diagnosticians, able to piece together some difficult puzzles and figure out what's going out on an outpatient basis. Thank you. So my next question is, is probably a bit of an impossible one, given everything that you've just said. Yeah. Um, is there such a thing as a day in the life that you could talk us through that gives us a feel for what you do? Or is it just so varied that that's, that's not possible? It's very varied. So um, I have uh, two typical clinical days. And I also, like lots of acute physicians, have lots of other non-clinical interests as well. So the days I'm, I alluded to there, a typical day might be in the admissions unit. And that can be managing a big medical team making sure that patients who have already been admitted have had a senior review and a plan are stable, are either being discharged or moved onwards to an appropriate ward. And then also managing new patients that are coming in who may need stabilisation, emergency treatments, emergency referrals elsewhere. Um, and those days can be extremely busy because there's both large volumes of patients to look after and large volumes of staff to work with and to interdigitate with and to lead. The other typical day I do um, is, is a little bit uh, balanced between the other areas we do, which is high dependency and ambulatory medicine. So I might go and do a ward round in the high dependency unit, which is seeing the sicker of these patients. So patients who may be needing special organ support. So, for example, help with their breathing, help with their blood pressure, help with their kidneys that a normal ward can't quite do. But these patients don't quite need intensive care. So they're still awake and talking to you, but very poorly. And then once I finish there, I go to ambulatory medicine, which is the clinic for emergency cases, where we try and help keep people out of hospital. And those people generally need same day or next day review by a specialist, um, such as myself, my team, but they don't necessarily need to be stuck in a hospital bed for that to happen. Thank you. So you obviously find the work that you do, it, it sounds challenging, but you obviously find it very engaging and interesting. So I'm interested, how did you get here? You know, what 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 made you decide to specialise in this way? Of all the specialties you could pick, why this one? Sure. Well, to be very honest, I sort of fell into it. So um, I did some medical rotations when I was a trainee that are the equivalent of internal medicine training stage one now. And I did find that I really enjoyed every specialty I did. And that probably should have been the clue at the time that I was uh, a budding acute physician because every format detachment I really liked, but I didn't feel overly attached to that single organ enough to commit the rest of my life to it. But I hadn't really considered acute physician uh, acute medicine, because I think it was largely in its infancy at the time, there weren't many role models in it. It wasn't hugely recognised as a specialty. So I thought I wanted to do gastroenterology. 
Um, and I applied for a job in that. And as is familiar with many trainees, it's not always possible to get a training post that you want. So that year I didn't. And I was offered acute medicine as a kind of backup. Now, I thought I would do that for a year and then change to gastroenterology. And actually in that year, I really enjoyed it. I realised it was a specialty for me. So I continued my training and I've never looked back. No offence to the gastroenterologists, but I'm pleased where I've ended up. Um, so, I mean, you, you may not entirely be old enough to answer this question, but <laughs> have you seen any significant changes in the way things are done over the course of your career thus far? Yeah, uh, certainly um, since um, I was a medical trainee, I've seen year upon year increase in patient numbers that are being seen really astronomically. So uh, people are becoming much more complex and sicker. And now when I'm on, I expect to be present in the unit the whole time seeing patients. When, when I was a junior, the consultants might be off in the afternoon golfing. <laughs> and, and actually that was okay because the workload um, and level of sickness was generally acceptable. And the idea of leaving my trainees in that environment just now would horrify me. And that is certainly not saying anything bad about the trainees because they're phenomenal, but just about the workload. I think people have recognised acute medicine as more of a specialty and the need for people to train in it. And they've recognised that acute physicians have specific skills in leadership and management that help ensure that those really busy days and busy units keep on track. I don't get to go golfing in the afternoon, I should point out. I was, I was going to ask. Times, times were different then, definitely. Very different. Um, so sort of following on from those changes then, you know, thinking about the future a bit and, you know, the next generation of acute physicians, <laughs> you know, is there any advice you can offer? There, there may be students listening to this who are thinking about how to specialise at this point. Is there any advice you can give to them? And also, are there any particular skills which are useful for them to have to be good at what you do? Sure. So the advice I would say is go for it. I think a lot of people enjoy their acute medicine attachments, but they see the admissions unit being so busy that they presume that will have an impact upon their quality of life and work-life balance when they're a consultant. And that's because generally as a student or a junior doctor, your shifts are often scheduled to be at the front door when you're on call. And so they often do long spells of intense long shifts without breaks for many consecutive days in the acute medical unit. And that's exhausting. So people often then um, in their minds think acute medicine exhausting, whereas actually it's being a trainee and working night shifts and working intense routine patterns that are exhausting. Actually, as a consultant, there's really good opportunity for work-life balance all of the acute physicians I know have specialist interests that they do one or two days a week, for example. Um, I'm not always in the acute medical unit. I am doing different things like ambulatory medicine clinic, like I mentioned. So I think it's a really varied job with a good work-life balance that maybe trainees don't get to see the same when they're doing. I'm also interested to know, are there particular skills or attributes that are really useful for an acute physician? Sure. So uh, we have an interesting uh, position, which is probably one of the things I enjoy most about the job in that we have to work with about the biggest extended team out there. So we have a lot of contact with GPs, with uh, emergency physicians and with specialties all across the hospital, probably in a much greater frequency than any colleagues in other specialties. So you need to be a particularly good communicator with them. 
um, and that includes negotiation skills, persuasion skills. You have to have a good rapport and um, be willing to get on with pretty much everyone in the hospital because at some point you're going to need their help. Now, the other thing is at some point they're going to need your help too. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. But it's very much about people management, about knowing who the people are that you can call for help, having a friend that you can call at any time. And, and I think that's a, a big part of the job is facilitation through knowing people and knowing pathways. So you can't be too introverted in the role. You have to be willing to be fairly extroverted to get to know everyone, to get on with people at times of extreme pressure and to stay calm throughout. They're all trainable skills. So it's understandable that people uh, early on in the training might think that that sounds fairly intimidating but actually it's probably the most enjoyable part of the job and confidence develops as your training progresses. So they're all learnable skills so you don't have to be born an acute medicine specialist you can become one. Absolutely absolutely we can train that into people and it's often confidence related Uh, so we see particularly during uh, kind of IMT stages that um, trainees start to build in confidence managing the take and start to realise yes maybe I could do this as a career. I don't know very many people at more junior stages that um, say they want to be acute physicians and I suspect it's because that environment looks a bit intimidating at a more junior stage but um, We were all there once and we all got there. (laughs) Thank you. So I'm going to ask you what is my favourite question, because I get excited about the historical side of things. So imagine that I have been given permission by the college to set up a museum of each medical specialty. So what is the one object, the one tool that you would want to kind of demonstrate the role of what you do the kind of to represent or show what it is that that you do do you know what there's no tools that are particularly needed other than our communication skills uh so you would have an acute physician sitting chatting to someone (laughs) um we use very little that is expensive fancy or impressive uh beyond potentially a stethoscope and a needle for a blood test. And the beauty of the specialty is, although it sounds exciting and singing and dancing, the vast majority of diagnosing a patient and managing them is about talking to them. So if you could put a voice in a museum, someone having a conversation, that's about as glamorous as that would get. But actually that's really fundamentally the most important thing about medicine. No, and you're you're not the first person to say that to me. And I think my (laughs) museum is gonna be filled with telephones and ears and notepads rather than as you say with with tools as such it's it's the dialogue well maybe we could put the med reg bleep that is probably the most famous and at times dreaded piece of kit uh, and certainly the most used and most respected i suspect in the hospital out of hours so let's put the medical registrar pager in the museum fantastic thank you very much Um, So we're coming towards the end now, but the one question that we can't completely avoid, it's April 2022 as we're speaking, and the COVID pandemic has obviously been a huge part of all of our lives for the last few Mm -hmm. years. So how has the pandemic affected your work? The pandemic has had enormous changes in acute medicine units, which have potentially of all areas in the hospital been the most affected in terms of volume of patients and rate of change. 
I think the impact upon ITU is well publicised, but they see the minority of patients who are A, sick enough to end up there and B, uh, usually well enough to mean that they're a candidate for intensive care, whereas everyone and their auntie and their dog can end up in an acute medical unit. So we have seen huge numbers. And indeed, I diagnosed Fife's very first case of COVID when there were very few cases of it around. Um, so we have had to come at it with enormous flexibility. We uh, have changed the whole layout of our units and our whole team working so that we could have different teams and different areas for patients with possible COVID and patients without COVID so that we could try to protect both cohorts. That has meant that we've had to split ourselves in two at all times. We have had pathways, guidelines and new drugs develop at a rate of knots that's never been seen during myself or any of my colleagues' working lives. Uh, in fact, I think none of us will have seen such a big new condition and new treatments ever. So the learning curve across the world has been amazing and we're still evolving. We're still adapting to each wave as it comes. That has been um, exhausting at times, exciting at times, uh, frustrating at times, but I think actually has been an amazing learning curve for acute medicine across the world and, and in many ways a real privilege to be part of acute medicine at such a fundamental time. Thank you. And do you think these changes are going to stay? Do you think there's a, a long term, you know, a, you know, in a post-COVID, if there is such a thing, a post-COVID world, will these changes still be a part of your work? There's some that will and there's some that won't. Um, I think we have better learned very quickly uh, infection control, modern infection control pathways. Uh, certainly our masks and PPE aren't going anywhere at any point. Um, we are better thinking about people's risks of infection and transmissible disease, which perhaps we didn't always think about as routinely as we should have. Um, we are learning to be um, flexible, adaptable, uh, we're learning to do more of our non-clinical work online, such as learning via podcasts, such as having um, online meetings via Zoom and Teams and so forth. And I don't think any of that's going away because we've learned some real skills in that in terms of how to better time manage and better multitask. At the same time, it would be nice not to be split in so many places and to have teams that could be together again. And I mean physically together in groups, socialising in groups. It would be nice to be able to bring the very sociable side back to medicine. But that has to be done in a, in a safe manner. And it very much depends on what the pandemic has in store for us over the next few months to years, I think. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much. So so we come to the end now, but before we finish up, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wish you'd been asked or, or anything else that you'd like to say that you haven't had the opportunity to say? Um, I would like to put a word in for acute medicine as being a really good long term career. And as I mentioned earlier on, people, I think, have a perception that it's exhausting and there's a poor work life balance. But actually, I've been a consultant for 10, over 10 years. And in that decade, although I've certainly stayed late at times, once I'm home, I'm home for the night. And if I get calls, generally it's someone wants advice. The only bit of me they need is my brain. And that can be um, transmitted over the telephone in discussion, was actually many of the other specialties involve coming in. Uh, the renal physicians have to come in and 
put a dialysis line in, the gastroenterologists have to come in an endoscope. And that's great if you're passionate for that specialty, but you may have to do that in your 50s and 60s, and it's worth thinking about that. So I always am slightly amused when people think acute medicine is more exhausting out of hours than any other specialty because um, I can wake up, give my answer from my pyjamas and fall back asleep. There's also lots and lots of non-clinical things that acute medics are very good at and tend to have transferable skills that mean you can pursue specialist interests in training, teaching, leadership management, and they give you really fulfilling job descriptions as a consultant so I think it's just me putting a shout out for acute medicine as a career and rather than a period of on-call just to be coped with for people to seriously think about it as a long-term career option. Thank you that's that's really fascinating and and thank you for joining us today Kerry. You're very welcome. For our case study this week, we'll be looking at the case of Lancanu de la Seine, or the Unknown Woman of the Seine. This case is a curious story about how a drowned woman ironically, and quite literally, became the face of CPR. The Parisian legend, dating from the 1880s, tells of a young woman whose drowned body was recovered from the River Seine following suicide. As was customary, her body was transported to Paris to be displayed in a public mortuary for the purpose of identification. At this time, it was a popular attraction to visit La Morgue, which was considered the only free theatre in Paris. Parisian newspapers often speculated on the identities of the dead, and guidebooks directed visitors to the spectacle of death that La Morgue provided. Sadly, as was often the case, Lancanu was not identified. However, her serene expression supposedly caught the eye of the mortuary attendant, who ordered a plaster cast to be made of her face. Within a few years, replicas of the girl's subtly smiling death mask became wildly popular, and likenesses were sold across Europe as decorative models. Philosopher and author Albert Camus described the likeness as the drowned Mona Lisa, and numerous 20th century writers were inspired by Lancanu's story inviting parallels with tragic heroines such as Shakespeare's Ophelia. It was thought that she had died by suicide, but then other stories emerged of her being murdered, or of eloping to Paris from Liverpool with a wealthy suitor. It was alternately claimed that she was German, Hungarian, or Italian, earning her another nickname, La Belle Italienne. Eventually, doubt crept into the legend of Lancanu, and people began to question whether the original mask may actually have been taken from a live model. Although she had been somewhat of a cultural icon at the peak of public interest, the twist in Lancanu's narrative comes at the hands of Norwegian toymaker Ashmund Leerdal, almost a hundred years after her supposed death. Leerdal and his company were famous for producing some of the earliest plastic dolls in the post-war period, and it may have been this skill in making lifelike toys that led a group of anesthesiologists to approach Leerdal about producing a doll for medical training. Whether you remember Vinnie Jones in the award-winning British Heart Foundation advert for hands-only CPR, performing compressions in time with the Bee Gees, or you're a fan of YouTube's Dr. Mike and his rally cry of chest compressions, chest compressions, chest compressions, 
the idea of cardiopulmonary resuscitation is now ubiquitous in Western culture. So it might be surprising to learn that modern CPR technique wasn't developed until the mid-20th century. It was in this period, when medical students were just starting to learn and practice CPR, that representatives of the American Heart Association recognized a training model could save the students from the unnecessary pain and potential rib damage of practicing CPR on each other. In 1960, in collaboration with Dr. Bjorn Lind and Dr. Peter Safar, Leodal produced Rissocian, a lifelike, life-size mannequin with open lips and a collapsible chest. It said Leodal thought the mannequin should be female, as he suspected that men would be reluctant to practice CPR on a male doll's lips. But there was no instruction given about the rest of the doll's appearance. Little is known about why Leodal chose Lancanu as his model, although it's rumoured that he was inspired by her serene face when he saw a decorative mask hanging on the wall at his in-law's house. Perhaps she was chosen because her features were reassuringly lifelike, or perhaps because Lancanu was so universally recognisable. The company's website only passes brief comment on how the mask of death became the face of life. Some critics suggest that Lancanu's facial features may have helped increase the realism of resuscitation training, making it more memorable. Others have pointed out that her face is unusually peaceful for someone who's drowned, or someone in cardiac arrest, lending further credence to the theory that the original mask was taken from a live model. It's estimated that more than 300 million people have been trained in CPR, many using the Rissocian. It's due to the huge success of Leodal's invention that Lancanu is said to have been responsible for saving so many lives, and why most discussions about her strange story refer to her as the most kissed woman in the world. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.